Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis, some insights on our better days into what's going on in the news media. And we hope that you will take an opportunity to join us. I'm Rex Smith here with my colleagues, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and Ian Pickus. That would be the past and the future of Capital Region journalism. (laughs) (laughs) Which is which? Which is which? Oh, my. Ian, of course, is the news director of WAMC, Rosemary Armeo, longtime investigative journalist, Judy Patrick, formerly editor of the Daily Gazette, and I used to be the editor of the Times Union. And uh, we are all doing a lot of other things these days. But we need to get right to, speaking of formers, <laughs> Chris Licht. Man, he's out at CNN. Uh, 13 months and gone. Would you th- are, you, are you happy about this, Rosemary? I have never liked him from the minute he got in and got rid of Brian Stelzer. I thought that was his first bad move. And then promoted, although it didn't look like a promotion, Don Lemon putting him with two women, both of whom were infinitely more competent than he was. That was a disaster. And then there was the rally that he called the town hall for Trump. <laughs> so, no, I've not been a fan. <laughs> yeah, so was the die cast after the town hall, or was the die really cast after the Tim Alberta oh, piece in, Vanity Fa- or no, in the Atlantic, Atlantic that documented just how self-centered he was when he yep. was running this news operation? Which, the scene of him in the gym in that article that did, I read that and said, oh, he is not long for this world. Yeah, and you have to wonder whether or not to blame the guy who hired him. Was he just carrying out orders to make this more MAGA-friendly, this network? And if so, well, who's going to replace him? And that's up to David Zaslow, the guy at Discovery who hired Lick in the first place. And he has said he wants, still wants someone who's not anti-Trump. But is there hope for that? What do you think, Ian? Can we have a middle-of-the-road network anymore? Well, that's interesting this week uh, at the same time that Chuck Todd uh, has announced his departure from Meet the Press. I guess the question is something I think people have been wrestling with since 2016 maybe, which is what are these networks supposed to be? Are they supposed to be straightforward service journalism outlets or are they supposed to get ratings? And it seems to me that ratings is driving these discussions for the most part. That's ultimately why they made a change at CNN. He had lost faith among the employees and his boss, so he couldn't continue, but also the ratings were down. And probably the Trump town hall that got so much attention was a desperate attempt to turn that around. So the question is, what is CNN supposed to be nowadays in 2023? Is it supposed to be boring and informative or something else? Is there a place anymore in our divided media landscape where we have MSNBC and Fox News, uh, not to equate the two because there are different standards of truth telling, but one serves a progressive audience, one a conservative audience. Is there a place for that middle line that supposedly is what CNN wants to do? I don't think so. I think that Licht came in aiming for the people in the middle, people who wanted a balanced diet. And there were 
weren't any. There weren't enough to sustain him. And Chuck Todd came into a lot of criticism. The stuff I read said it was from the right as well as from the left. I have only heard people on the left talk about how partisan he was towards conservatives. But his effort, at least, was always to go down the middle. It was to, it was to do the same thing Licht wanted to do. And he took as a point of pride that people on both sides criticized him. But he's out of the show after, it's, what, nine years? That's not the longest tenure on that show. Well, yeah, but nine years is a pretty good run for a TV a lot uh, of host. Of, I forgave him after he told Kellyanne Conway that alternative facts yeah. were lies, honey. <laughs> and that was spontaneous, <laughs> by the way. I mean, I think Chuck Todd, just to depart from Chris Licht for a minute, I think he had a very tough assignment doing that live in yeah. such a tight time frame with commercial yeah. breaks and everything. That's a hard job. I think about what NPR started doing with certain interviews, refusing to do them live, and then applying the truth sandwich to them in post, which was not something Meet the Press could do every Sunday. But right. think about how much our media landscape has changed in the time of Chuck Todd's tenure. You know, the Sunday shows don't have that same import that they used to because everybody is out all the time. You don't have to wait until Sunday to see what the Senate Majority Leader has to say about a certain issue anymore. Just, by the way, translate for non-professional listeners <laughs> what you meant by the truth sandwich and applying the truth in post. What well, Explain what that means. There was a great example of that done by NPR's Steve Inskeep, who mm -hmm. waited about seven years to interview Donald Trump when they finally got it. They learned a lesson from the ghosts of CNN past and recorded it so that they could interject and fact check around the things that were said in that interview as opposed to going live and not being able to respond in real time to misstatements of fact. Which Chris Licht did not learn, uh, which is what, <laughs> to, to Rosemary's point, that it was the Trump rally. Uh, he, he, in fact, not only didn't learn it, but boasted that his predecessors have been doing it wrong, that we had learned our lesson after 2016 and he knew how to cover Trump. And then he did the same thing that Zucker did, which was give Trump unfettered long-term time on a top-rated network. It was appalling. It is hard to do live interviews. It was actually, I, I remember a few years ago when, when Nancy Barnes became the head of news at NPR, right. she was the one who said, eh, there's a little bit too much of this live interview stuff going on. And I remember having a conversation in this show about it, but because she felt as though coming from a print background, Nancy Barnes had been the editor of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Houston Chronicle. She's now the editor of the Boston Globe. She felt as though there wasn't the opportunity on those live interviews with politicians to apply that truth standard in talking about. Right, and I don't think the audience cares or recognizes or even it matters. The audience doesn't know that this is happening live or they don't care one whit about it. One of the issues I think we have to recognize with uh, news organizations like CNN or NBC is that they are businesses and they do need to make money to fuel. But news organizations, while they may be businesses and need to generate revenue to keep things going, they also have a higher mission and that is to pursue the truth. And that makes it a much different enterprise than something that's just manufacturing widgets. It began to change actually even before the digital revolution because you remember when the three networks dominated, ABC, NBC, and CBS, there was a notion that the news divisions were the cost setters, you know, they were the loss leaders, as the business executives would say. And that was okay until a new team came in to run CBS News after Walter Cronkite left the anchor desk and said, no, you know, we have to make some money on these newscasts. And things began to change at that point. Right? 60 Minutes being the highest rated program had ripple effects, no doubt about it. Yeah, that's right. It worked. It's like Gannett and the print side. Which oh, said, oh we don't have to just make enough money to keep going. We have to make a lot of money to make our investors in Wall Street happy. And that ruined news. Well, we'll get to Gannett because they had 
had a walkout since our last uh, program uh, mm-hmm. involving newsrooms around the country. I just want to go back to this interesting point about Brian Stelter, who you mentioned was fired by Chris Licht at CNN. Brian Stelter had this to say, the recruiters of CNN's new chief executive should pose this question to every candidate. What should an anchor do when a guest says something untrue? So uh, he says the debate over the right answer has consumed television newsrooms for the better part of a decade. So, you know, if you're the CEO of CNN, you can argue with Trump if you're live, but that is probably going to be not working. You really do need to have tape delay at least, or you need to have an opportunity to edit. Right. Trump wanders so much. He doesn't speak in complete sentences. He would be impossible to effectively interview live. I would think you've got to tape him. And that's the only way forward for people at CNN. The problem is it's not just Trump anymore. It's all his acolytes do the oh, same DeSantis thing. DeSantis is just shutting out reporters. He, he doesn't even want them around. That's the way he's dealing with it. Elise Stefanik, a congresswoman oh, yeah. from the North Country, just doesn't meet with reporters at all. Right. Uh, you know, she will not talk to local newspapers up there or to NCPR, the NPR affiliate upstate, and certainly not to the Times Union. Please recognize that that is a third world tactic. When I started working in Bosnia and uh, like 20 years ago, no politician would talk to a reporter. Who are you? Why do I talk to you? And so an American company coming in, and we had reporters who insisted on not even written questions. You had to talk to us. You had to interview. And if you didn't, the story said the minister had no comment about why the budget was totally out of whack or whatever the topic was. And that was a revelation to readers. They loved it because politicians are supposed to be beholden, supposed to be accountable to people. The challenge for for us, I think, is that uh, for certain of these uh, elected officials or politicians, either tactic plays into their hands. If they don't talk to you, you know, we're waiting on a 2017 booking with Elise Stefanik to happen. uh, (laughs) 2017. They're not challenged in, in a way that, you know, most people like their public officials to be challenged. On the other hand, if they come on the air and you fight with them, they get to say, look at this nasty reporter who's out to get me. So it's very difficult. And we're lucky, I think, in this region that, you know, we haven't seen the trickle down of that Trump style all the way, but we have seen it on the local level and among members of Congress. Well, and the part of it, too, is that reporters' methods of operation have changed. There is a lot less out on the street getting things done and a lot more sitting behind the desk and asking questions or accepting it when public officials say, submit your questions by email. And I'll email you the answers. I'll email you the answers. Right. I'm so glad you brought that up because this was my take on the Atlantic story. Remembering the Jeremy Strong New Yorker profile, the succession actor, uh, which made him out to be a wildly interesting right. method actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder why anybody cooperates with these probing magazine stories. Uh, I don't know if that was necessarily the end for Licht, but it did not help. And as somebody who is constantly trying to get sources on the phone or in person to speak with us. Not long ago, we were working on a story here about a claim that 90% of asylum seekers from New York City who were bused elsewhere in New York were employed. We had a very hard time running that down. And the source of that statistic would not speak with us 
and said, you know, send us an email. And I think that's a bad trend for people in our business. And I wonder in the long term if stories like this will make it less likely for people who are of public interest to cooperate with reporters because it seems to have a lot of downside. It's a natural feeling, though, for all people to think that if only someone really knew me, they would understand. Mm -hmm. They would know what I was really like. I am sure Chris Lick thought that. He brought that guy, the writer, into the gym with him, into his home, into the office. He said he's going to really see me and know what I'm like. It's the McGinnis report, remember him, who wrote about the killer. The journalist and the murderer. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's Janet Malcolm, but the McGinnis wrote about a murderer who killed his wife and family. Which led to, right, led to Janet Malcolm. Janet and yeah. Malcolm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay, you're, you meant the subject, not the author. Mm-hmm. That was the same thing. That guy felt deceived by the reporter because he thought, if I just show him the real me, it'll all come out. So I don't think it'll go away. I think that there's a growing and scary tendency by politicians to distance themselves by reporters, either with written questions or PR people who I detest when they serve that role as shield, and to just give stock answers. We say we want honest politicians. We mock them for not being honest, but we punish them if they really say what they think. Look at Hillary Clinton. She told Coleman, you are going to lose your jobs. If they're going away, we're going to train you and find something else. She was crucified for that. Oh, coal miners, right. Coal miners, uh, coal miners. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was trying to think of who's, who's Mil- Milton Coleman from the Washington no, Post? No, 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 no. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but with a lick profile, it is astounding that he agreed to it. And I think a little bit of his, his ego, and I think he misunderstood himself. I, or he misunderstood yeah. what he was doing or how he was being perceived because I, I think if he realized it, he wouldn't have agreed to Don't it. Don't journalists yeah. give people license to do that, though, when so many journalists are willing to settle for that email exchange? Yeah. And it is actually convenient sometimes times to just say, okay, just send me something. But if we increasingly do that, if students, you've mentioned before, Rosemary, your students at UAlbany and at RPI who are so unwilling to actually get out there and and pursue things, if we tolerate that kind of behavior, that is going to change journalism. They actually, even those reluctant students actually do have a point. It's dangerous to be a reporter these days in ways it was not when we were starting out. Even in ways you, when you start out much later, and it's become much more dangerous. And so it is safer to just say, okay, send this in to me or I'll give you the questions. But it is not good journalism. Hmm. Dangerous, literally. Literally mean. dangerous, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. I mean, how many reports of... We never had deaths of reporters in this country, except for Don Bowles in 1976, and that was so unique that it became iconic. But now it's kind of a routine thing. You're out on a TV reporter in, what was it, Tampa, mm-hmm. was killed on the way, and, and it's it's And there are threats all the time. People at, at Trump rallies, for example, are always— Get them, get them. Yeah, reporters feel imperiled out there. And you can understand, then, why people would be reluctant to ask the tough questions when you're standing there in person. and. I mean, we've all had this experience of being afraid at a door when you're knocking on it or when you're... You can get shot now going to a door and you're an unknown person. (laughs) And look at January 6th. That was was a sustained attack against policemen and journalists. But if you are a tough interviewer, if you have this reputation, and then even if that's not the way they would put it, they would say, oh, you're biased. If you're tough, you're biased. How do you keep people talking to you if you're going to be asking tough questions? How do journalists get people to agree to talk to you? This sounds like my journalism class. How did (laughs) my 
Mike Wallace and the old 60 Minutes ever get. If Mike Wallace calls you and said, we need to talk, that is not good news. Why, did, <laughs> why would you say yes? You know, what I found over years and years of doing this was that if you're too much the nice guy as the reporter, you're going to get scooped all the time because the real news is going to go to the hard-hitting reporter who may not go to the every meeting. You, you may think you're the dependable, reliable reporter to talk to, but being nice does not get you the real news all the time. Being quiet and polite is different, though, than being tough in the sense of asking hard questions. One of my favorite investigative reporters was at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and he never spoke above, you know, a much less than I speak. <laughs> but he would have a briefcase sitting next to him, and whenever somebody would speak, he would just go, oh, and reach towards what was supposed to be a paper, proving otherwise in that briefcase. Like, okay, wait a minute, this is what's really going on. And, and he got so many people that way. It was He was very tough, and yet you would never know it by how gracious and charming he was. But, it, but if you establish yourself as a reputation as a reporter who gets the stories, a hard-hitting, fair-minded reporter, no matter how tough your stories are, people will return your calls. It also depends on what organization you're calling from. We, we will all concede that if you're from the New York Times, your call will be returned much quicker if you're calling from the Podunk Journal. This is an essential tension uh, from my job as you know producer of the Congressional Corner, which is uh, this strives to be a daily show with members of Congress speaking to you. If they have a very bad experience coming on the show, that might be the last time. So you are trying to keep those bookings coming, but also do a credible interview. And I have to say, I think most of them sort of understand that it's all in the game. You know, they're going to come on, they're going to reach their constituents. That's why they're doing it in the first place. And they're going to have to defend votes they've taken or statements they've made. And if it's done respectfully, but forcefully, I think they, they understand that, you know, both people in the situation have a job to do. But there's also the other side back to our North Country representative here in, in New York, where they just don't think it's uh, worth it for them anymore. And they shut you out completely. And then that is a huge section of their district who's not hearing from their lawmaker in the traditional channel. And as fewer people tune in to the media, you know, as these politicians are able to bypass journalists mm -hmm. and get their message directly to people, it makes it all the more difficult. Uh, you know, there's a new study that is out about how difficult it is for any kind of media to get through, how young people especially are stepping away from the kind of media that we have traditionally associated, N not just newspapers and radio and television, uh, but they're getting away from all kinds of media. We have to put it on TikTok. Well, there you go. For now, <laughs> this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's going to be a little difficult. I'm not much of a dancer. Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite report recently, one of my students pointed it out to me, was a young Asian woman applying eye makeup and at the same talking about the uh, human rights situation in China. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> a Trojan horse. Yeah. You know, and because of the dearth of journalists nowadays, because so many newsrooms have been gutted, the traditional role of the local media even in holding local officials to account has been lost. Like here's a Pew Research Center study that found that 59% of those who follow local news closely, people who say that they do, say that they're not getting the news they need on local issues. Only about 17% of the stories in local newspapers are about local civic issues. Even local newspapers are just now unable to keep up with local issues because they don't have enough staff. And because it's cheaper to use regional content, let's not leave that out. Unless you're like Peter Crummy from 
from Colony and you go on Fox and Friends to make a point about your anti-immigration He's policy. He's the local it's town despicable. supervisor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you can get on Fox and Friends as the local official, I guess you don't need to talk to the local media. At all, bypass But I would them. wonder what percentage of that 59% is subscribing seven days a week because that's the entire issue here. Yeah, how many are there or, or listening to the news at all in that regard? You know, we, I said we were going to talk about what happened at Gannett. So Gannett is the largest chain of newspapers. And when we say newspapers, what we mean nowadays is not just what's in print. For example, the three major Gannett newspapers of Alabama have all stopped printing on paper. They are all just at AL.com which is a statewide site. But all of these Gannett newsrooms, almost all of them, had walkouts for at least one day, in some cases two days, of reporters saying that the company has decimated their newsrooms. Poughkeepsie is a great example. We used to have a regular on this program, the executive editor of the Poughkeepsie Journal, Stu Shinsky. The Poughkeepsie Journal was a wonderful mid-sized newspaper. You Did know, even very, very good investigative reporter. Yeah, they had about 50 people in the newsroom. There is now one reporter, one part-time reporter covering Poughkeepsie for Gannett. Part-time. Oh, um, man. And so that is what is happening to Gannett these days. And no wonder the journalists are frustrated. No wonder the communities feel as though they're underserved by this. I don't know how you come back from that. I think the problem began when Gannett started amassing all these local papers, buying one paper after another with debt. And then Gannett separated their broadcast division from their newspaper division and put all of the debt on the shoulders of the newspaper division to keep the broadcast division free to go forward. That's, I'm sorry, a business model decision that has terribly gutted the newsrooms in local communities all over the country. And what's really sad is a lot of people out there just don't understand that that's what's happening. We we talk about it on this program a lot, and you would think that people would understand how much stress local media companies are under, but they are not aware of it at all. You, you hear from some people, especially liberals, who will say, yeah, we understand that you're understaffed, or we understand that there's need for mo- local news, but the average person doesn't understand it, and they don't understand the business model that you just outlined, Rex. They don't understand that when papers buy each other up, they do so at a high price. Somebody walks away with a lot of money, but the newspaper is saddled with this huge debt that they can never get out from under, and it results in huge layoffs. It's really almost criminal. So one of the downsides, too, of this, beyond the lack of accountability journalism, is the loss of the sort of community fabric that uh, local media have provided. I remember my uh, first summer as an intern at a little newspaper in Indiana, I went out and shot the photographs of every Little League team. You know, all these little kids taking a knee and with their coaches, and it, and, and it was like a, an exhausting few <laughs> days in, in July as their seasons were over. But, but it, you know, it helped to stitch the community together. You see the Little League teams, everybody's looking at the paper. It was also you, pretty good for business. Every well, parent, every absolutely. grandparent, every aunt and uncle would get a copy of it. I, I always laugh people say, oh, you're sensationalized to make money. No, you make money when you do graduations and little league teams and sports. Or and the grand dances. champion pig at the 4-H show at <laughs> there the you county go. fair. You know? <laughs> right. right. And, and local again, news, there you go. To put an end to the lie, sensational news never increased news sales. Never. never. We do not write sensational stories to sell papers. Well, Didn't, uh, never there, work. There are, there are certain sensational national events that would bring people out, and the Challenger blowing up, and the O.J. Simpson and Chase. That, that sold newspapers, but not in a sustained basis. 
Right. Any big investigative piece is not going to uh, no, increase no. newsstand sales. Oh, no. Newsstand sales actually are gone the way of Mastodon. I, Do I they even have newsstands anymore? I don't think, well, there are no news racks anymore. You know, those little metal racks on the street? Yeah. That's a shame. There's right? one in the WAMC newsroom. <laughs> ah, well, there. We're, we're keeping it going. <laughs> it's a relic. It's a great thing. It's kind of like a gumball piece. machine, right? <laughs> I keep got to keep it around. It is something that the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that there's been a 57% drop in the number of reporters in less than two decades. I'm surprised it's actually that high, but that's reporters overall. And now listen to this. There are more local librarians than there are local newspaper reporters. Wow. And think about how understaffed your local libraries are. That's an interesting statistic. Especially having just done a a story about a plan by the Vermont State Colleges to abandon physical libraries, which was later rolled back. So neither uh, area is a growth industry, it would seem to me. Now, by the way, if that coverage hadn't been there, if there hadn't been significant news coverage about that, I don't think they would have rolled back that decision. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, It got a lot of headlines and a lot of hand-wringing, and that sort of led to uh, a a rethinking in Vermont. So if there is no no media, and we have cited before studies showing that where local media has evaporated, taxes have gone up. Local taxes rise because there's nobody actually paying attention to what's going on. And people will say, well, you know, somebody's posting something on Facebook about the car accident or uh, or tweeting about it. It's not the same. It doesn't have the same credibility. And often you have you have errors in the Facebook tweet because it's the rumor mill that's the gossip that you're getting on social media you're not getting. So there are a lot of trees falling in the forest that nobody's hearing. Right. Think of local school boards especially, you know. Just between 2003 and 2017, according to a study that uh, I was just reading, there are only one-third the number of school stories that there used to be. So if we're not covering our local schools, which is one of the really important beats that one of the most important things that local government does, local government, broadly speaking, is to give us schools. And if we don't know what our schools are doing, we're really leaving people in the dark about what should be fundamental to their communities. So it's that kind of stitching together that the local media do that in the absence of local media and the loss of these newsroom jobs caused by executives going for the big money instead of the job of providing journalism to the communities. You know, but even local papers that aren't under that incredible debt that you get with mergers and acquisitions, they're struggling as well because the price of newsprint's going up. They're losing their local advertising base. They're competing with Facebook and Instagram for um, online advertising dollars. They get hardly any of it. So even um, they don't, they're, I think one of the reasons those mom and pop operations have been able to sustain themselves throughout this a little bit is that they don't have the debt, but they certainly have a lot of financial challenges ahead of them. Well, credit your former employer, a family-owned independent newspaper, uh, which has continued to go on and do its job without the kind of pain. Not that you haven't had huge cuts, I'm sure, there, uh, but it's not the kind of pain that we're seeing in these Gannett communities. Yeah, we're with one person covering 10 different school boards, six different village operations, towns, counties, and that's just not even talking about the broad issues of climate change that we talked about last week that we need to, you know, right. more seriously address. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, enough of this depressing news. <laughs> We're all still here. Chris Licht is not. Uh, Chuck Todd's going. Uh, but uh, we'll still keep trying, and uh, we hope that your local news organizations will keep going. Notably, WAMC, which has uh, had a good fun drive. Live to fight another day, and this is a, a great example of what we've been talking about. You get what you pay for, and we thank you. All right. That's Ian 
Ian Pickus of WAMC, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, for giving us these great topics and making this all happen. And thank you folks for listening to us once again this week on The Media Project. Publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>